Jesus, it's packed. Yeah, go down the back there, so. Welcome to the Snog with Richie and Lavin. Hello, 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 uh, and welcome to the Snog podcast, a podcast from the west coast of Ireland, where we talk to interesting folks about their interests, their passions, their side projects, whatever stuff that they're into at the minute. Um, how are you laughing? How's Richie? How are you doing? I'm grand. Oh, I forgot to introduce ourselves. Again. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're Richie. I'm laughing. There Easy you go. peasy. No, don't, don't. Uh, I think we mentioned in the last episode that you uh, were away. Where were you away to? I was away in Virginia, oh. in in the United States of America, oh. visiting friends and family, and it was great. Old crack. Got to got to uh, meet my new niece. Oh, lovely. Uh, Claire. So, uh, my sister Shana was saying she listens to the podcast. Her and her husband Santiago. So, uh, hello, guys. Oh, thanks, lads. Shout out to to the Lavins over beyond. And uh, another friend of mine. Um, um, uh, Seth Swingle was saying he loves us in the podcast too. Oh, so cool. hello, Seth. Hey, Seth. Thanks very much. Um, how long have we gone for? I was there for about a month and a half, and it was great crack. Just fucking again, just visiting friends, not doing anything too crazy. Got a, new, a couple new tattoos. Yeah, I can see one on your arm. Um, yeah, I got a got a alligator um, with the human arm in its mouth uh, for the song Amos Moses by Jerry Reed. Okay. And um, my buddy Josh got the exact same one. We got matching tattoos. Lovely. And uh, that's oh. a theme of yours. Which, uh, I, on this arm, I have a bunch of matching tattoos. I got at least three, and that's going to jump to probably four or five soon enough. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it was great crack. I had a great time. I'm really delighted to be home, even though it is January. Yeah. I mean, right now it's January. I don't know what time, what it, what month it's going to be when it's this probably still raining whatever day you're listening to this song, you know? oh yeah there you go it's that day yeah but um yeah and how about yourself did you have a good fucking last month and a half yeah it was grand what did we do yeah you were gone before christmas weren't you yeah um yeah christmas was a thing was busy i met a few people pints nothing too dramatic and yeah moved house you know getting shit together for the wedding Mm-hmm. and stuff like that same as ever same as ever pretty much exact same what I was doing before he left well um, and who and who is this you, you interviewed what's his name this is Bip Henderson Bip Henderson and you were saying what he <laughs> he's like me is it yeah he's like an alternative uh, what's called from uh, alter reality Lavin oh wow so Irish American similar to yourself and um, plays uh, traditional music and a bit of an artist but as he's and your big tall Scandinavian roots as well on the other side yeah and he's a he's a vegan and um, um, uh, teetotaler so um, kind of the mirror realm as you're saying you diverge in that way so I'm Uh, probably the evil one you probably are the evil one yeah yeah you're definitely are the evil one yeah Uh, I got the goatee (laughs) it's a Star Trek reference yeah you got the um, the shitty fish even though I don't have a goatee Eamon has a goatee Eamon Healy our first um does he goatee now? Interview person we ever interviewed. Yeah, he, he that guy rocks a goatee all the time, and you know what? He does a good job rocking the goatee. Yeah, it's only a certain face that can pull off a goatee. Like yeah, that. and not many. Yeah, right. but um, I don't know. Everyone should rock him anyway. Just like mullets, I think everyone should start start back on the mullet train. You know, I don't think so. I I, I think it's great. It's, I, think I think it's it, only certain um, men, and I say that loosely, men 
young lads of a certain age that can pull off a mullet these days. You can see people some not rocking around and it's just like Oh, I love yeah. seeing like old old men still wearing the exact same thing they were wearing when they were twenty. Do you like is there is there a lot of mullets from the eighties left over in West Virginia? In in Virginia, sorry. Oh. Um no, not a lot. I know two or three people that probably still have a mullet from when they were younger. Yeah. But I think there, it's it's becoming more common now to like just wear a mullet, you know. And I'm fucking loving it. It's I'm probably never gonna do it because I can't ever imagine cutting my hair. But if ever I do cut my hair, first thing I'm gonna do is go crazy '80s mullet. Yeah, it's quite a commitment when you have such a long hair. I know. Yeah, it is. It's a fucking. It's a big one. It's like all these girls that we know now, like shaving half of their head off. It's like that takes some amount of balls to do it. Like you know, it's a commitment. What's that? It's a commitment. It is a commitment, and fair play to them for doing it. But, um, all right, enjoy the episode, people. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is Bip Henderson. Any crack? How are you, how are you finding this cold weather? It is cold, but it was nice and sunny today. I took my dogs for a walk on the beach. Nice. So it was uh, the sun. It was actually warm in the sun when I was out exercising. Out Spiddleway. Yes. Yeah. And the dogs, dogs like the beaches out there. Oh, they love it. Yeah. You, do you get? Um, I know they have those in ridiculous beach rules. Um, you know the way you can't have dogs and stuff. Do people enforce it out there? Uh, no. Well, it's the only place I could bring my dogs off the lead. You know. Oh yeah. So I bring them there so they can run because, uh, like, they need a proper run. Dogs, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. taking them on a lead, unless you're like a, a unless you're an Olympian runner. <laughs> The dogs are not going to be getting a good workout yeah. running with you, you know. What's got, what kind of dogs are they? Uh, well, one's a little uh, miniature Jack Russell, and the other one is a Chihuahua mix. So they're two tiny dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just look. What height are you, Bip? Uh, six five. Six five. Yeah. So yeah, your stride is probably how many steps for them? <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> they um, can still outrun me. Yeah. Very quick. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, your people can probably tell by your accent that you're um, you're not Irish. Whereabouts are you? Where are you from? Yeah, I'm originally from uh, San Francisco Bay Area, oh, okay. the North Bay. Yeah. yeah, I was raised in Marin. And um, so, from San Francisco Bay to Galway Bay. Uh, so, how long how long are you here? Oh, I've been here, good. I went 14 years, I think. Oh, wow. Well. No? Yeah, a yeah. Long, long time. And uh, <coughs> how did you land over here originally? I, when I was younger, I used to play a lot of traditional Irish music, so Galway was the obvious destination. Yeah, yeah. And is, is Galway where you landed first when you came over? Yeah. Yeah. And you've just been here ever since? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been, I've, I've traveled, the first time I came to Ireland was just on a holiday when I was 18. And I traveled all around the country, but um, at that time, and I was a traditional Irish musician, so Galway's like the you know that's the top destination. Yeah, and San Francisco actually has a very good traditional Irish music scene as well. Oh really? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it's mostly Irish immigrants, uh, but you know, Galway's probably the top. I'd say. Yeah. Um, and what did you play? Or what do you uh, play? Well, mainly a ballad singer and uh, play guitar, but I play a bit of everything. I like I learned originally. I started playing music with tin whistle, and then um, guitar, banjo, bazooki, accordion, 
Right, you're a man of many, many talents. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I have a musical ear. Yeah. And so, obviously, you're coming from an Irish background. Your parents are... Well, I would have be, um Yeah, three out of four of my grandparents of Irish descent, but... My family has been in America since the like famine at the earliest, okay, or most recent. Sorry, yeah, and even further back, like my direct paternal ancestor was uh, captured by Cromwell. No way. Yeah, forced into indentured servitude and sent to America. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what you call? So, did you grow up in? Um was being um, Irish American a, a big part of your your? Um well, I think well, my mother's father was Norwegian, and that was kind of the dominating cultural. That's where the six foot five comes from as well. <laughs> well, actually, my on my Irish side is very tall as well. Okay, um, but yeah, like my grandmother was, um, you know, she was always talking about Ireland and things like this. Yeah, her Irish roots. So, um. Like, did you have to go to? Did your your parents force um, music on you when you were a kid? Did you have to. Oh, you have to learn songs from the old country or anything uh, like that. No, no. Actually, the first time, I don't even remember. I think I was three years old. My grandmother took me to uh, Irish, um, some Irish band. I think the Irish Rovers. They're a Belfast band, but they're ba they were based in. Or I think they're all from Belfast, but then they moved over to. Ar America in the 60s oh, okay and um, my grandmother took me when I was I think three and she said after I was singing all the songs okay after cool. just hearing them once yeah but I don't remember that and it wasn't until I was like a teenager that I started playing music yeah so when you landed over your 18 and stuff like that um, were you touring were you playing in local bands Were you just you busking with your mates or Oh, no, the first time I came here, I wasn't busking or anything. Um, I was just going around, backpacking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking a lot. Yeah. I was really happy to be uh, 18 and able to drink legally here because it's 21 in California, oh, you know? Oh, yeah. And have you... So when did you move here proper then? Um, let's see. Well, two years after that, I moved here for a year, like studying... And then I moved back about f a few years after that okay. for good. For good. So, but when the the time when I moved back and I was living here for a year, then I was busking, and this was during the Celtic Tiger. So, like the good I, old days, it was great. I was making great money, and like I was playing in pubs. But then I stopped playing in the pubs and was just busking because the money was so good. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just on Shop Street and stuff like just that. Just on Shop Street. Yeah. Yeah, we had um, who do we have? Echo Hart. Oh, Echo Hart. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. Yeah, he was just saying during the, um, the pandemic that like his his what you call it influence and you know just his his support network went up because you know there was no music in the pubs. Everything was on the street, and that was the only place anyone could get live music. Yeah, I watched him play once, and like they were doing a great set. Uh, this is during the pandemic, so everything was closed. And he was probably, there was probably at least 80 people just gathered around. Like, it was like a concert. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. And there's like, yeah, during the pandemic here, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs> Swamped by teenagers on a Friday night or whatever. 
But like, you know, up and coming artists, when you're starting off doing gigs and stuff like that, you'd be doing well to pull in 80 people. So oh you, yeah, definitely. You, yeah, you're playing to um, an empty bar with you know two or three people, like you know. But although he puts on a good show, like he's a, I think he's influenced by uh, U2 a bit. Mm. He reminds me of Bono. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was actually on the way over to see Bono the day after or something. He was oh, okay. doing like a live show and like um, you know those storyteller shows. Oh, okay. You know the talk from he, I think he had a new book out or something. So you know read a piece and then you know play a tune or whatever like all right <laughs> <laughs> you could do that with a book no it sounds good yeah good idea so <laughs> when did you um so did you stick at the music is that where eight bit banjo started or those years eight bit banjo yeah i've been uh my band eight bit banjo i started i think in 2015 i feel like 2015 and then it was kind of more americana folk and then I switched it around to synth wave. So I was doing synth wave stuff for a while. And now um, it's kind of like a third uh, reiteration of the band now th that we're uh, more punk. Oh, really? Punk. So we're punk synth now. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the stuff that you have online, it's, it, it's, it's synthy, but like it's Oskielga then as well. Oh yes, that w well that was the um my wife uh recorded a song for Culture Night, one of my songs and she translated it into Irish. Oh. And is that who's singing on the Daskelga, yes. Yeah. Oh really, yeah. Yes. And is that the person that's in the Banshees of Inishir? Yes. No way, that's yeah. your missus. No oh, speaking of Bono, we when we went to the Dublin premiere, he walked by us on oh, the red really? carpet. <laughs> it's the most surreal moment of my life. Wow, imagine so. <laughs> check out the book. Check out the book. So that's that's your partner on the um on in the movie. I only watched it there the last night. Yeah, it's a it's a good film. Hmm. It's a he's a great director. And it's it's cool to see it getting so much uh attention yeah getting a lot of attention um yeah i was wondering how you blagged your way onto the the red carpet there so that uh, <laughs> that makes sense now fair play to her and um well like how did she um how did she get get that uh, part uh well she's a very well-known traditional irish singer shano okay. singer she's from Inishir originally okay last reign in Ikanela. okay so yeah um i wrote down her name but i wouldn't have uh, attempted to <laughs> pronounce it so I, I know we're jumping all over here, but um, you're also a filmmaker and a film producer, and then some of your um, your films. That's what true rerun films. Some of the stuff you do, um, you speak Irish in it as well. Oh yes. Well, I'm not a fluent speaker. A couple focal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was that like her influence, kind of? To well, it's more my influence of trying to get Irish television funding. All <laughs> right, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> um, so we'll go back to the music. So, so when did you make the uh, the transference? Did you go to um, to film school here or anything like that? No, like I originally. Do you know Little Cinema? Are you familiar with yeah. Little Cinema? Yeah, uh, Little Cinema for people listening that don't know. It's a very cool. Uh, showcase in Galway of local filmmakers and it's you have people that are professional filmmakers in there and you may have people in there 
who filmed something on their phone and are, are you get 16 year olds yeah. submitting films so it's like it's a really cool place that you they call it an open mic for filmmakers you see so many different types of filmmakers and basically i went there in 2017 april uh was the first time i went there and i met a bunch of people and i worked with them to make a, a short uh and that was i'd never done anything okay. so i learned just by making yeah and I was then, I was a big film buff, like yeah. a big fan of movies, but I'd never um, took any formal training. It was all learned. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I've heard you speak um, on another podcast, and your um, your knowledge uh, seems quite deep. So you're obviously a movie buff. Was there anything in particular, say from your childhood, that kind of sparked your interest in in filmmaking? Oh well, I think it was just. Um, like growing up in the 90s it was a great time for cinema like it was the last great film renaissance i think um it like it was kind of an echo of the 70s because they had the budgets but this time in the 90s they were giving budgets to first-time filmmakers and it was really like dialogue driven films you know like where you could see kevin smith things like this people that make very cheap movies mm. uh, but it has a really good script that could stand alone could be a book you know yeah and i saw that i think and i like these kind of wordy movies i like other types of films but like the 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 movie industry now is just not great at all you know yeah it's, it's hard to know where it'll actually end up really with all these kind of just streaming servers battling for everybody's money oh well, it's uh, yeah it's dying in a way i know people are switching to television but even the future like kids now I have a 10-year-old daughter. Like, they don't uh, watch movies like we watch movies. They ha they watch YouTube, you know? Yeah. They watch a 10-minute video that costs zero to make, <laughs> you know? And when you're a filmmaker trying to get a million-euro budget and you're now competing with somebody who's making free content, there's just no future for that budget, you know? Yeah. Like, my, my daughter is 12, mm. and... um over Christmas I was just like I didn't want to but I knew she'd seen the first Avatar so I was like do you want to go see the new the new one and I really didn't want to go to see the new one and she was like no my, I wouldn't have the attention to sit there for three hours okay because you know it's kind of you know it's instant hit dopamine I want to watch this reel or whatever yeah you know um but I suppose you have other like production companies like um, say A24 and stuff. Oh yeah, A24 is great. They're putting out great stuff. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of longer form kind of challenging stuff that you actually have to sit down and you know concentrate to watch. I don't know who runs that company. I should because you could tell that they have actual passion for film. Mm. Because anything I see with the A24 is, you kind of know it's going to be good. It's it's worth worth a go at the very least and you'll probably see something you know, I'm sure they're not all um, diehard classics. Like, but what did I watch recently? I love Tusk, Kevin Smith's horror. Movie. I've, I've never <laughs> seen that actually. Michael Parks is the main, or he's one of the main actors, and he's just so good. He's the he's the scientist or something, is it? Uh, well, I don't want to give okay. anything yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, we won't ruin anything. Yeah, what did I see? Her, um, Hereditary. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's a good Jesus. one. Jesus. 
that terrified me <laughs> <laughs> even the start i don't know we won't give anything away but like it's still definitely worth the watch i like um psychological horrors more than kind of blood and guts kind of stuff yeah well i know what you mean but at the same time i love john carpenter do you, and, um, and and the thing is kind of a blood and guts, and that's probably my favorite horror movie. <laughs> I just watched it at the weekend. <laughs> it's brilliant. Isn't yeah, it's it? so good. It, the special effects hold up so good because they're all practical. You yeah, know? yeah. It's actually it's the practical effects in that are actually more disturbing than it would be if it was CGI. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We can probably talk about it because it, you know, we came out in 1982 or something. Oh yeah, don't, yeah, we don't have to worry about spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the bit when um, he's trying to revive him and then your man's chest cavity opens. <laughs> Fucking hell! It's great. It looks oh. so real. Yeah, it does. It's it, terrifying because it was just a big, big uh, puppet. Yeah, and um, actually, I was listening to something, something recently. Uh, I forget. It, it was a. Uh, Oh, I think it was Mick Garris. Do you know Mick Garris? I don't. He's a horror filmmaker, but he's a friend of John Carpenter. And he was doing like uh, publicity on it, the thing, when he was filming it. And he was there when they're filming. And John Carpenter kept kept filming takes. And he'd be like, ah, this looks too much like rubber. So then they'd have to go put more makeup okay. on it to make it. Because it was all shot practical. So yeah. once they got it right, they knew it was right. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, when you're relying on special effects, most of the time, special effects are still crap, you know? Yeah. Because to do good special effects is very expensive. They could do this, like, stuff that, to me, so many of these movies still look like N64, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're, and you're supposed to, like, give, you're supposed to go along with the film, but it's hard when it just looks so fake, you know? It it very much takes you out of reality. Yeah, it takes you out of reality. Yeah, I, I kind of find I think not to uh, shit on George Lucas more than <laughs> everybody else does, but uh, I think the first I watched episode one about a month ago, and it's crap. It's oh, garbage. Yeah. <laughs> it's a garbage film. Oh really? <laughs> I'd have to disagree with you there. But. Okay, <laughs> but like, even when you're talking about um, films that you like that are wordy. I watched that recently, well, I'd say recently, five years ago with my, my partner, Hello Chloe, um, for the first time. And she watched it from, it was like, this is the first time I've ever seen these films. I just watched them and was like, God, they're really funny. Which film? Um, episode one oh, to episode three. episode one. And, um, yeah, that's what I, I mean, like, the CGI was just so bad. Yeah, And yeah. then the special editions as well, because, um, which is the craziest thing, because you can't find the old Star Wars without the bad 90s cgi that yeah. he added which is insane because the old stuff was just like great yeah it looked real it was all it was puppets but it was like you know well-lit puppets look real but like you can't even get the um you know all the gaffs and stuff you know you know the you know the stormtrooper running into the wall and all this kind oh, of stuff yeah i've heard about this stuff i've never seen it because it's all edited out in whatever version that, that george puts out like you know okay but i think getting back to my original point like episode one that was i think the first film i can remember that was so heavily cgi um influenced so you know half the cast are cgi animals and when you know, when they go under water and then you have a lot that you know marvel movies these days and all yeah. that kind of stuff it's just and like marvel movies now are a lot better but they're still not there but <laughs> that episode one 
<laughs> it is funny. And uh, to be honest, well, okay, I never saw... Did you ever see George Lucas's first film, the THX? Yeah, a long time ago. Okay, yeah. I, I need to watch that because... I, to me, as like a director, I don't think George Lucas knew what he was doing. I don't think so. He's a very good um, world builder. Yeah, he's yeah. A great. Yeah, he's a great imagination. But did you see like this stuff that was cut out of um, Star Wars: A New Hope, like the first Star Wars he directed? He had like a, a half hour of this weird storyline with uh, some character that. Um, luke skywalker looks up to but it's a very strange it really has like the uh american graffiti feel oh really like yeah. it feels like they're in high school <laughs> and he's like the high school older guy yeah so i think whoever was editing are like we gotta get rid of this this is terrible <laughs> <laughs> he didn't direct the the next two then after that no. did he yeah and then he directed the other the the trilogy, I think. Did he direct them all? Oh, the third one was very good. I have to say, I have to give him credit because I think the third, uh, episode three, I think is a very good movie. It's strange how um, people's opinions of that whole universe varies because we had someone else on and they were like, oh, I really love the prequels. And I think Lavin was here and I think episode one is his favorite. Or episode... Fuck, I can't remember. Well, I I was too old. I was in a. I think if you're a little kid when you came, when, yeah, when they came out, you love them because you have a nostalgia thing for them. But I wasn't. I w I loved the the original trilogy. Yeah, and then I was literally like a Star Wars nerd. And then overnight, after seeing Episode One, I gave away all my Star Wars stuff because yeah. I'm like, this fucking franchise sucks now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think he kind of completely lost his way. Um, but it was after I think after he had watched Jurassic Park or something. I think when he'd seen um, Spielberg's Jurassic Park, that he was just like, "Oh, I can do what's in my head now." So maybe he should have just left it. <laughs> or what I don't understand is, okay, he did this weird thing in the '90s of putting the Star Wars like he wanted. Fair enough. Why doesn't he do that now and go back and fix the bad CGI? And then you can actually maybe look at those movies. I can't watch episode one because it's just every time the bad CGI comes on, it looks terrible. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not, you go outside the Star Wars universe. You're, you know, I'm, I'm up with him when I see the people there and I see the somebody in a suit, but then you see the bad CGI and you're like, this is not a movie. This is a crappy video game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'd say he's lost all kind of love for that kind of stuff anymore. Was there any other, uh, apart from George Lucas, was there any other film directors that kind of um, the piqued your interest back in the day? Well, like, he would have been, I love this, yeah, Back to the Future, of course, trilogy, hmm. Star Wars trilogy. Um, and then when I started getting into film, it was the 90s, so like Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, the Coen brothers. Coen brothers are probably my favorite. Yeah, which is your favorite Coen brothers film? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, because so many of them are just great. That's the thing about Coen Brothers. Like, okay, maybe Quentin Tarantino, I like better his movies, like all of his movies. But they're, the Coen Brothers are much more prolific. And, yeah. and most of their movies are great, yeah. you know? I, I've seen like a couple of their movies that are not great. 
and the rest are great. So it's like The Big Lebowski, of course, is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, but then you got Raising Arizona. It's another great. Yep. Like, you look at Nicolas Cage in that. That's, that's like... The feels like that film was made for him, but that you know, but that's so much a Coen Brothers universe movie too. Then you got a Serious Man. That's a great one as well. I haven't seen that actually. Yeah, that's. I'd have to say that's probably my favorite one. But, oh really? But then yeah. it's hard to say the Big Lebowski's not because I've probably watched the Big. When I was a teenager, I used to watch that like once a week, <laughs> every weekend. Me and my friends would get drunk and watch the Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. Um, oh God, it's such a quotable. <laughs> Where's the money, Lebowski? <laughs> we believe in nothing. <laughs> yeah, but like even um, yeah, Burn After Reading or uh, Miller's Crossing, you know, mm. there's so many films there. It's hard to find a bad one. Maybe it a bad is. one, actually. The Lady Killers. But it's, I haven't seen that, actually. No. Which I won't even say it's bad. It's just like not as good as their other movies. Yeah. That's the one with Tom Hanks. It's a remake of a Star tying back into the Star Wars universe. It's a remake of a film with Alec Guinness. Oh yeah, the yeah. Lady Killers. Yeah, I think it was on Over Christmas actually. Yeah, I think the uh, the original one is very good. Mm. Um, I and I need to watch that remake again to be honest, but it's just not as good. Mm. I feel you know. So um, even Burn After Reading, I feel like that's one of it's. It has. I think it's one of their lesser films. Okay. Although Brad Pitt in that movie, that's one of his best roles of all time. Like just Brad Pitt in that movie yeah, is yeah. worth watching. Like <laughs> I I you know what's funny is I don't think John Malkovich went well with the Coen brothers. Yeah. And I know that they really wanted him in that film and they got him in that film. But you know John Malkovich has a weirdness that makes any movie he's in a John Malkovich movie. And the Coen Brothers, every movie of theirs is a Coen mm. Brothers movie. So I just think, I don't know if it's a, I think it's my personal yeah, yeah. just taste that I feel like it's. <laughs> yeah, I think it's maybe John Malkovich's um, pacing or something doesn't meld with um, what they, they, they do. Uh, yeah, he kind of found a lot of place as well. I can see your point there. But Brad Pitt is great in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell he loved that role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll go back to your own stuff, though. Um, when did you release the book? I released the book in um, around Patty's Day last year. Okay. And where did you... So you had the book launch, I know, just before Christmas, but that was just... That yeah. was just a thing that you did with um, the local vegan supplier. The Irish vegan gala. Um Originally, no, I didn't have a, a book launch, really. Okay. I just went on a few podcasts to promote it, and I released it through Amazon. Um, so, yeah, I've basically just done podcasts, and I have the Instagram page for Norse to the Future. Um, but then there was the Irish Vegan Gala being organized, and the organizer asked me if I wanted to launch my book there. And I said, okay. Since I didn't hadn't officially had a book song, I said sure. Yeah. yeah, why not? Yeah, um, Norse to the future. Uh, it's a it's not an autobiography. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, do you want to summarize the plot? Maybe I just don't want to give any plot points away. Okay. So maybe. Yeah, it's a comedic novel, and it is about um, a Viking who comes. A Viking from Viking times that comes to modern-day Galway, Ireland through a wormhole. 
Yeah. Okay. Right. You're going to give away that much. Fair enough. I give that away, but I won't. I won't give the details. It's a. It's a comedic novel. Character study. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's good cracks. Actually, it's a good read. I, I read it over Christmas. Thanks very much. No problem. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> you sent me on the PDF, and I had read a, a couple of pages, and I was just like, "Yeah, yeah sure, should buy this." So I went down to Bell Bucking Handle and uh, Orange Killers. They sorted me out down there. So where where is it available? Just so people know, it's available at the Moy Collin Bookshop, uh, the Charlie Burns Bell Booking Candle. There's a Man of Aaron Cafe on Inishmore, on Card Shop uh, on Inishir, and um, I think Bookstop Ennis. So when did you start writing it? I started writing it during the first lockdown. Um, there was a. I forget there was some sort of short story competition and I think it was a 5,000 word entry which at that point I'd written hundreds of songs but I'd never written anything 5,000 words yeah. so I was kind of like hmm this is interesting uh, and, and I had like a couple ideas for short stories at that time that I'd tried writing so I thought oh okay I'll, I'll do this challenge so then I wrote my 5,000 words then I was going to submit it last minute <laughs> and I submitted it and didn't work. And I refreshed and it literally said, this applications are now closed. Oh. This contest. But, but the good that came out of that was I was like, well, it, it actually wasn't that hard to write the 5,000 yeah. words. And then I was thinking, you know, a novel's only 10 times that. So why not? I'm going to, I'll give it a try. That's true. That's a good way of looking at it. All right. And was the 5,000 words, was that like a, was that similar to the novel? Anything? No, it was no. a completely different story. And it's actually a story I've wanted to turn into a movie for film or for years, which I was thinking now maybe I should write it as a novel. Um, but it's hard having time to write a novel. Actually, like <laughs> that's one good thing about the lockdown. It's like I had nothing to yeah. do but stay home and write. Yeah. Um, and I started writing Norse to the Future. I had originally half written it as a screenplay. So then I had the idea, oh, it was a screenplay that I had wanted to make since 2016. Even before I started filmmaking, I started writing this as a screenplay. Yeah. So I knew that I had a lot of, uh, like I knew the characters in that and I knew what I wanted to happen. So I said, oh, look, I can go and take my like beats I have written out for the screenplay and just try to take a few of those and make a chapter yeah so i did the first chapter and that was like i don't know a week or two it took me to write that and then i didn't do anything with it and then i came back and i did another chapter didn't do anything with it and then probably like a month later i finished the third chapter but then once I had the first three chapters written, I'm like, well, hmm, now this is actually going somewhere. Yeah. And then I, at that point, then I started writing every day, kind of basically full time. Yeah. So did you have a process once you, you hit that three um, week limit where you're like, I'm going to get up in the morning, I'm going to do X amount of words or I'm going to write for X amount of hours or. Yeah, I did the X amount of hours. Um, not too much. I think I gave myself like something like 11 to 2 or 11 to 3 to write. Yeah. And then if I felt like writing more, I would. Yeah. But I wouldn't go 
longer if I didn't have to. Because yeah. I don't think there's a point, you know. Yeah, I, I I'm think... very stubborn. If I'm not in the mood to do something, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sitting there for hours is not going to help. I suppose I suppose it wouldn't help your creative process either if you're trying to force yourself. Yeah. It should really flow, I suppose. Yes, I think so. Especially with something um, comedic. Yeah, definitely. If you're in a shitty mood, you're not going <laughs> to write something great. Yeah, that's true. I know, yeah, I know there are like, I know Jack London and Ernest Hemingway, both famous writers that famously both wrote and they made themselves write a certain amount every day. But it's... Um, Stephen King does it. I think it depends, I guess, what you're writing, you know? Yeah. But not, I don't, yeah, like you said, I don't think for humor, you can't force humor. Yeah. Um, I know um, you mentioned it somewhere. Maybe it's in the blurb of the book. Um, that a big influence was um, John Kennedy O'Toole. Yeah, John Kennedy O'Toole, the author of A Confederacy of Dunces. Now, that's very weird. I actually read that book earlier this year. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, great, isn't it? <laughs> and our usual co-host here, Lavin, it's his book. Um, and it's, um, what's his name? Billy Connolly's favorite book. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. And it's now, I think it was written in 1969. And it's a terribly sad story behind that oh, book. Oh, very sad, yes. Yeah. The author of... Uh, He'd written a neon Bible. Actually, I've never read that. You'd think no. I'm such a big fan of Confederacy Dunces that I'd read it. I'd read it, but everybody, every review says this book, this isn't a very good book, <laughs> basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and even there was a film adaptation and I couldn't even sit through that. Oh, really? Yeah. But, but that's it, not, that doesn't bode well. So, yeah. But I don't want to review something I haven't read. So yeah. I'll just say Confederacy, a Confederacy of Dunces is a genius book. And this guy, he wrote it and he thought, look, this is a masterpiece. So he went and tried to get it published and he went to, you know, a bunch of publishers and no one would publish it because obviously it was ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, and he ended up committing suicide. And the the second tragedy of this is he supposedly had written a sequel to Confederacy oh, no Dunces that was completely lost during Hurricane Katrina. There was only one copy oh. of it that was destroyed and where it was being held. So, because yeah, the, the book is is um, set in New Orleans. Was New he Orleans, from, yeah. yeah. And was he, was he from New he Orleans? He was from New Orleans, yeah. Oh, no way. And it was actually his mother years later that actually got it. She got the book published after yeah. he died, I think in 1980. So, I think he killed himself in 1969, I think. Jesus. So I think the book would be even older than... Yeah, it's crazy if you read it. It's so ahead of its time, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes now people criticize it for being on PC. But it really? was very progressive when it was written, you know? I suppose, yeah. Some of the way some of the characters are written, you could... Um... But the fact that he had black character, gay character yeah. in the 60s, like, I think is very progressive. And New Orleans as well. Like... Well, the main character is like morbidly obese. You probably could see him as like an incel or something, maybe you now these days. But um, yeah, he's a great character. He's not a likable character. No. <laughs> he's like, um, do you ever, do you ever watch uh, King of Comedy with um, Robert De Niro? Oh yeah, Mar yeah. The way he's, God, he's so unlikable, but he's the the lead of the <laughs> film. Was just like, yeah, that's how he reminded me. Yeah, um, and I think you were on promoting the book. You were on. 
this online TV show, Office Hours Live. Oh yeah, Tim Heidecker's podcast. Yeah, and you mentioned something about that they've tried to... Um, they've, yeah, ever since it was published. It, see, it was after it was published, it became a bestseller. And it was on like, I think it won uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so they were trying to turn it into a film. But it's just, for this movie, you need a very good lead... It's, it centers around the comedic lead and this guy needs to be a fat obese uh big obese guy yeah or it's not going to work because that's the character you know so there's not that many comedians that actually are actors i should say that actually fit the profile to play this guy but every time there's a um a funny uh, obese guy like i think it was originally supposed to be john candy and oh, then no way, yeah. And then he died, and then they wanted Chris Farley, then he died. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, what's his name? Nick Offerman played him in a, in a play version, and I think that's great casting. I'd yeah, love to I'm, see. I'm just Googling his name there because I'd seen... <clears throat> I'd seen clips online when I was reading the book of Nick Offerman playing him. Yeah. But he put him in a big... Big yeah. suit. So you, you need someone quite large. He's not fat enough, but he's no. articulate enough yeah. to be the Ignatius character. Yeah, you need someone kind of eloquent that could um, portray Ignatius. If anybody out there who's listening, <laughs> any producers, <laughs> somebody go cast Danny McBride. He'd be perfect wow, wow, for this yeah, role. That's a good cast. Huh? He's not tall enough, but you could get him to stand on a crate. You, know? <laughs> you could fake that part of it. But he is, I think, personality-wise, he'd be perfect, Ignatius. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Have you seen um, The Righteous Gemstones? Yeah, yeah, very good. Eastbound and Down is one of my favorite shows oh, is it? of all yeah. time. Or yeah. his character, specifically, Kenny Powers. It's just one of the greatest top five TV characters of all time, yeah. you know? So it seems like that the conferency of dunces is kind of it's cursed. I don't think it's cursed. It's just like, like what I said. It, you need a specific actor for it. So you need to get. What they would need to do is get an actor that's perfect for it, and just completely work around that guy's schedule. Yeah. And now at this point in time, I wonder. I'd say maybe it, it is. Uh, I don't know if they would make it now. Yeah. Know? Maybe not. But I, I don't know even, I think it would still make a good film, but a lot of times a book is of the place. I'm not going to say Confessory of Dunces is because it's very funny and I recommend you read it if you haven't, but I'll say On the Road, Jack Kerouac, which is, I don't think that's a very good book, but that's my opinion of it. But I think it's because if I would have been alive when it was written, if I was a kid when it was written, I think it would have been great. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think Francis Ford Coppola was alive. Like, I think he was like 16 or 20, something like that when it came out. And if you read that back then, you'd think, wow, this is great. But I don't think it's aged incredibly well. It's like, it looks, it seems old fashioned now, you know, it was cutting edge at the time, but it was, you know. I, I, I read it for the first time when I think I was 20. And it's very much um, a young man's book, I mm. think. Especially, you know, the themes they they cover and, and kind of, you know, it's just reckless abandon, kind of a lot of it. And just, you know, 
freedom and you know who's the the lead character again I can't remember On the Road yeah I don't even remember the yeah and then I just the whole time I was reading that book I was disappointed because I'd heard so much about it oh yeah <laughs> and then I'm like this book is crap <laughs> I, but that might be too why you know maybe yeah, I yeah, should yeah. give it another read yeah when you read something and you're expecting it's the same as a film you know when you have mm. a lot of build up on a film you kind of are like get dip- disappointed easily if you're heard only good things about it you know yeah I can't remember and then, then he's like his best friend is kind of like the really the lead character of it. Yeah. Yeah, the guy that has all the kids. Like it's kind of like a one, a kid in every state kind of job. Um, but yeah, they they made into into a film there recently. It was a terrible film. Yeah, but it's I think the story itself is too dated. It's not gonna that, like you said, as a young person's book or whatever but i feel like it's a young person from that time period's book mm. even from now if you read it and you're young you're like what <laughs> it's kind of old-fashioned you know and then uh, for a movie it's going to be the same like it's a strange i think it means a lot to a lot of people from that generation yeah uh i guess not even it's older than baby boomers it's like the pr- the pre-war babies yeah so it's kind of like the beat generation yeah wasn't the beat it? generation um so another big influence was uh, Flan O'Brien. Flan yeah. O'Brien, yeah, he's an incredible author. I love Flan O'Brien. He's probably my, although Confederacy of book Dunces, Confederacy of Dunces is probably my favorite book, uh, but Flan O'Brien, his whole, uh, all his books are great. You know. Yeah, I swim with two birds. I swim with two birds. Yeah, that's a dense book. I swim with two birds. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great book. Yeah. It's very he gets he 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 gets like in these crazy places. What do they call him? Uh, post postmodern, I think. Mm. So even going back to that podcast that you're on, um, Office Hours. Office Hours. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of on cinema. Have you ever seen on cinema? No. At the cinema, it's a series starring Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington. It used to be on Adult Swim. Okay. But now they're on Tim Heidecker's own network uh, producing content. But you could see like the first 10 seasons are all up on YouTube. Okay. As well as they had every year they have Oscar specials, which are like the whole premise of the series is it's um, a movie review show, but it's. Um, it's fictional, isn't it? It's so, fictional, yeah. yeah. But it's but they're playing. They're called like Tim Heidecker's name. Tim Heidecker. Greg Turkington's called Trim, Greg Turkington. Oh, right. So they're playing like this slightly alternate versions of themselves, you yeah. know. And and it's even. I think the first time I saw it, it was like I didn't get it. Like it was too subtle. Yeah. You kind of have to sit down and watch it. It's. I think it's the best thing out there. And I, just uh, for me, it's the top satire of yeah. this. Uh, century like to me that that's like kind of like a modern flannel brian you know what i mean well high praise oh and, yeah and how did you uh wrangle your way to get on it twice you were on it twice weren't you on cinema or or no oh office, office hours no yeah. i've been there i think five six times oh no like way that. it's kind of like anybody can go on there okay you could go on zoom um but you got to 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 promote the book as well. yeah and you had what's called like one of the um, flight of the concords was on while you were there as well, right? Yeah, Spread McKenzie. 
That's not bad going, is it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, Natasha Leon from oh, Russian, Russian Dolls. Yeah. That's kind of Flynn O'Brien-esque as well. Yeah, yeah. So you self-published the book. Yes. Is that correct? Was that a big undertaking? Was that... Did you have to self-fund then as well? Or did you do like um, well, I, a GoFundMe? Or? I did do a GoFundMe. I published through Amazon. Originally, I was hoping to get published by a traditional publisher. But as a, a first-time fiction author, yeah, it's nearly impossible, impossible to get published. Because no most book houses don't want fiction anyway. They oh, really? Want, yeah. They want memoirs. They want poetry. Really? First time, the only fiction they're publishing is by established fiction authors. Yeah. Because there's too much, and you know, in their defense, there's a lot of crap out there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I I think my book's good. Like, I, yeah. I, it took me a year to write it and another year to edit it. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then my wife as well, she edited probably top to bottom. Uh, it was rewritten 10 times, you know? Mm. So... I know I put in the hours anyway, so, but at the same time, somebody that could have just spent a weekend writing something can submit that to a publisher. So most publishers say we do not accept yeah, yeah. submissions from fiction authors. And then there is a few houses, publishing houses around Ireland that do take it. Uh, and a couple in America I was looking at, but the kind of the waiting time is a year minimum to hear back from these people. Oh, so wow. it's like, you know, I fin I'd, I want to just move on with this. I want to put it out there so people have access to it. Yeah. Because before I'd been doing filmmaking, and like I said, I was trying to get this made into a film in the first place. And I've written screenplays, but that they haven't been made, like feature screenplays. Yeah. And then if you have a feature screenplay that's written, Nobody reads it. There's nothing... If it's not made, it's kind of like yeah. dead on the shelf, you know? So I was thinking if I adapt it as a novel, at least people can read it. Mm -hmm. And then, I, you know, I'd love to see it turn into a film as well. Yeah. Um, I know you said that this is one of possible trilogy of books. Is that correct? The Norse to the Future? Yeah. Norse to the Future, I have at least three other books that tie in with it in my mind okay so like if you self-publish the first one people can see um you know publishers can see that you've self-published the first book and yes. you know it's out there already you know you've 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 got the ball rolling you've got some kind of following in social media or whatever so it, you know you're making it easier for yourself maybe to be picked up uh, for the next book Yes, well, at this point, I don't know necessarily do I want to go to a traditional publisher. Okay. Because now I have, like, friends that have done that route that have been traditionally published. And it's, it's a, you make a lot less money. Okay. Um, because if you're thinking about it, everybody that works for the uh, production house is making, getting a cut of your book. Yeah, they right? all need a slice. So... Uh, a friend of mine, like she, I think she said she had a book that was like $24 and she was getting a dollar for every copy sold. Jeez. So, which is understandable with all the fees, but at the same time, the books aren't selling there. Most of these publishers aren't actually promoting your book. Mm. So you're going to have to do self-promotion if you want it to sell anyways. And then if you're self-publishing it through Amazon, you're going to get more money if you're... Uh, 
yeah. than if you'd had it traditionally published. You're getting a bigger slice of the pie, like, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> I do hate Amazon, but <laughs> it's so, like, it's impossible to compete with them. If yeah. anybody knows of a better model, I'd like to hear it, you know? Yeah. Because the other good thing is they print to order. So I don't have to order a thousand copies, you know, and go out of pocket at first. Yeah. You can print by the copy and you get a the same price basically as if you got a thousand copies printed but per book so it's very good like that yeah um i know you're um would it be too much to say that you're a vegan activist oh yeah well i'm vegan and i i want the world to go vegan so i guess yeah you're fairly vocal with it yeah well i mean there's 80 billion land animals being killed every year which is insane yeah it's crazy it's like it's you know it's horrendous um and if you and there's human starving still uh and if you look at cows just the cows alone i think there's one or two billion cows killed every year jesus christ what a lot of what they cows eat humans can't eat they eat a lot of grass these type of thing but something like 15 percent of what a cow eats is like porridge things like that actually human could consume yeah and just i think a statistic is something like five five to ten percent of what they eat if that was given it could feed all the world's starving people Jeez. so the food you know it, it's it's not ethical it, it take take away the rights of the animals lives which i have a problem with them being killed right yeah but if you look at just remove that and just look at what they're being fed and there's people starving it's it's awful, you know. I mean, Nikola Tesla, one of the smart, smartest men ever to live, a hundred years ago was saying they, the future shouldn't be uh, livestock; it should be growing oatmeal. Yeah. He said that. Oh, really? Yeah. Hundred years ago. Yeah. Over a hundred years ago. I think, especially in this country, um, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian only a year. Okay. And my partner's been a vegetarian for probably. I don't want to give her a her age. <laughs> so probably, you know, 30, 30 years probably plus. And her mother was a vegetarian back in the 80s. So there was, you know, everybody used to look at her like she had 10 heads or whatever. Um, and I, I can see the ethical side of it. Um, and I'm trying to fo- slowly push myself towards going to vegan. Um, I, 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 I think I, I'm finding the transition from eating meat to vegetarian a lot easier than going from vegetarian to vegan yeah oh um, i don't know well maybe if you're eating out a lot but it's like when you go into duns say or wherever you shop uh like there's tons of vegan options now yeah. and just if you're worried at all about ethics the dairy industry yeah it's terrible is as arguably well. the most cruel part yeah. of all animal agriculture and i mean people are against veal but if you're buying milk you're supporting the veal industry yeah. Because they're creating, they're taking the babies away from their mothers and they're turning them into veal and they're, so you can get the milk, you know, it's, it's most people see, this is the thing as well. I've, I guess I went vegan in 2015 and for me the at that time, the information was just getting out there. Yeah. The cruelty, like I, I was before i was vegan for four years before that i would have been all plant-based except i ate eggs okay um but then i didn't realize 
in the what made me stop eating eggs overnight is when I found out in the egg industry, as soon as a a, a baby chick does a boy hatches, they put it into a grinder to kill yeah. it because they have no monetary value. It's yeah, just, they sex them straight away, and then it's just it's very cruel. Yeah. And this is the egg industry. This is like if you buy eggs, that's what you're supporting. Yeah, even if they're marked as free range, they're often Anything. they're not free range. Yeah, most most chickens. They live in a factory without seeing their sunlight their whole life. And they're just shoved in cages like it's despicable. Yeah. And, you know, it's illegal to show the inside of slaughterhouses. And I think there'd be a lot more vegans. And a lot of vegan activism is just trying to break into slaughterhouses, film the footage and get it out there. Yeah. Because, you know, people should be aware of what's going into their food they're eating. Like it's cruelty, you know. Mm. You don't know um, a singer songwriter. He's. He's American, living in Ireland now. Uh, Peter Broderick. Never heard of him. He's a, a vegan activist as okay. well. Um, but he, one of his songs was a big push for me for um, turning vegetarian. He sings the song um, Human Eyeballs on Toast. Okay. And it's from the perspective of a battery chicken. Oh, yes. What he'd like to do with to the farmer if he had a chance. Oh, it's God, it's bloody heartbreaking. But I think um, Irish people are very um, wrapped up in a sense of tradition when it comes to farming. <laughs> and that's the funniest thing to me, because it was the British who brought uh, big, large scale cattle farming and sheep farming into Ireland during the famine. As a, and it was a genocide against Irish people as well as the cows and the sheep, mm. because uh, during the time of the famine, the gentleman farmer, for anybody listening that doesn't know, a gentleman farmer is an English person that was given a plot of land that the English stole from the Irish in Ireland. So they were given this plot of land to go move over to this place and they're allowed to work there because they had the right English bloodline, yeah. right? So they had the Irish peasants working for them and they were mostly tenant farmers. And they saw that they could have a bigger profit if they had sheep or cows on their land instead of these tenant farmers raising vegetables and they're getting a cut. Yeah. So they started making the transition to the cow farming, sheep farming. And at that time, the Irish peasants had to either die or emigrate because they no longer had their tenant farming job that they'd had for a thousand years or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's a funny thing like the Irish farmers that are cattle farmers, they want to talk about tradition. They're West Brits. Yeah. Come on, that's a West <laughs> Brit tradition. Shots fired there. No? <laughs> but even, even during that transition from, say, um, a tillage-heavy he um, farming industry in the south of Ireland, um, post um, the famine, they, they turned to, to dairy or livestock farming. Um, and then a lot of... Um, tenant farmers or peasants lost their jobs because there was no one to you know to to um you know cut the um the tillage or cut the corn or whatever like that so you know if you have like a, a village full of people working um you know part-time seasonal work on a large farm every year in the autumn that job is gone because they only need like you know a handful of people to um exactly. you know shepherd sheep or whatever yeah and that's why i said at that time period it was a genocide against the Irish people as well, you mm. know. And even, but like, even if you go back to say my mother's time, so she's sorry, ma'am, now she's 77. 
when they were growing up, there wasn't this massive industrial farming system that we have now. There probably wasn't on a smaller scale. But like you know, they didn't eat meat every day. You know, it was it was a special it was a special treat. You know, they had one one um, cow or maybe a couple of pigs. You know, but it's nothing yeah. on the massive scale of eight million um, eight million um, bodies that you're talking about. Eight billion, eighty billion a year. Is eight. it eight? 80 billion yeah it's crazy either way that's a big number (laughs) it's it's too big when you think of like what is there 7 billion humans like so over 11 animals per person per year is being killed like it's insane but when you think about that many that number and then there's what a thousand mountain gorillas left and there's you know so many um species that are just on the cusp of and extermination you, you look at uh, the rainforest they're cutting down the rainforest to grow soy to feed cows yeah all you know i know um a, a anti-vegan argument is how bad soy production is mm-hmm. which is ridiculous to say all soy is unethical because they've been eating soy in china ethically for millennia right but the unethical soy production, which is when they're deforesting the Amazon, that's all being used to feed cattle. That's why they're growing that soy. Most soy in the world is going to feed cows. And like I said before, one of these things, if just if you took away the cows from the ethical point of view, all the food that's there, you could easily feed all the starving people in the world. You yeah. know? It's, it's, capitalism is so crazy. Like This should be a crime. That people starve while other people, so they can eat something, this luxurious thing, what they think is luxurious or whatever, that's now commonplace. Yeah. It used to be luxurious. Not only is it not necessary, it's killing us. The number one and number two causes of death is heart disease and cancer, both of which are caused by eating meat and dairy. I, I, My father was going for cancer treatment at UCSF in the late 90s one of the top uh cancer research facilities in america and they they were telling him in the late 90s they knew about the link between cancer and meat at that time because he stopped eating meat then and it it's criminal that this is not out there everywhere lobbyists it's lobbyists yes it's a huge industry uh and it's like it's not just america it's ireland it's every country in the world has this huge uh, uh industry of dairy farming and cattle farming and they're killing the animals which i i am against ethically but even the people that are not against that they should have the information that it's killing them too you mm. know i know in the book there's um a quite a pro-vegan tread throughout um the main character is a vegan oh yeah north to the future my the protagonist jerry yeah. brooks is vegan yes um is it possible well i suppose yeah, is it created in an ethical way then as well because i know some capitalism is not ethical <laughs> i'm an anarchist i'm against capitalism but we're living in a capitalist world right hmm. and i'm I'm not a rich man. I'm trying to make a little bit of money just to survive. So I don't think that's unethical. Uh, if 
like I said, if there's some sort of uh, affordable, ethical publisher that's all low budget, uh, or sorry, not a big corporation, yeah. yes, I'd love to support them. Yeah. And anybody you listening, <laughs> point me in that direction. Um, but I like ca capitalism. This is a problem of capitalism, and we need to change because you see these huge corporations. That's the direction everything's going. You can't compete with it yeah. in capitalism unless there's it's changed. But I don't like I, you'd have to have a lot of loopholes, and realistically, corporations have teams to try to look for every loophole, take advantage of every situation. Capitalism relies on exploiting others. There's no way around it. Either slavery or indentured servitude. Things we have here in this country, Ireland, in America, anywhere in the West, it's coming from people being exploited in third world countries. China, they're, you know, it's unavoidable. Yeah. The, the system's broken. Actually, and it's, if you look at Ireland, uh, back in the 60s, Ireland was a lot poorer, but it was nearly self-sufficient. I think that's a great way which every country should be doing. Not, And I say country, I mean every community should be going self-sufficient. So you, you would like to break communities down to kind of nearly fiefdoms? Yes. I don't, I don't think... I'm against imperialists. And the only reason we're living like we're living under this Irish government where they put in whoever they want without people voting for them. That's a direct result of imperialism because up until the 1600s, the Irish were living in clan systems. And if you look around the world, every country was living like this. They were living in these small communities where they, you know, they, it's, yes, maybe it was a violent life if you look back, but when you take into account 80 billion land animals are being killed now, every year, I don't think it's more violent. It's just, they're just less depends humans what, being murdered. Yeah, it depends on uh, what direction you're looking, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, but I think your standard of living was better for the majority of the people under these systems. Like my grandmother was raised as a tenant farmer. Very poor. Traditionally, that's like the poorest job. And her standard of living, man, that would be expensive now. Yeah. They grew everything they ate. It was all organic. Uh, all the water they got out of the well in their backyard. And it was clean, unpolluted water. The air they breathed was all fresh, unpolluted air. You cannot get that now. And if you did, it would be very, very expensive. Not only that, they had huge families. They had big sense of, they had communities, you know. I think people are more depressed now than any other point in history. The only advantage we have now is our phone. <laughs> you know, it's, it is. Your standard of living has gone down in every other way. The phone is better. But even that, if you, if you look at... It's making you depressed. Yeah, how much harm it's doing. Yeah. Is it better? I think the access to cool movies and TV shows is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it, you know? Yeah. In the last 400 years, the streaming services have definitely got better. <laughs> That's one positive. Um, so for the sequels, do we have, um, do you have a time frame when you'd like to, to release the next book? Well, to be honest, like, um, 
depends if there'll be another pandemic. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, I, I've been concentrating a lot on my band lately, 8-Bit Banjo. So okay. I'm hoping to start touring with that. Um, but for for writing, like I haven't started writing. I have my my next book. I want to write uh, outlined, but at the moment I'm focusing more on music, so I don't. I'm not in a rush. Yeah. Uh, Will it be a sequel or it's in the same? I have a sequel, and I have like a prequel that's in the same universe, and that one has a sequel. And then the sequel to the prequel, <laughs> it ties more into the Norse of the Future line. Okay, okay. So I I have a huge, like I, like I said, you know, I grew up with Star Wars. Uh, so I like this whole universe thing. Yeah, and yeah. I have a huge universe. Expanded for universe. Yeah. Um, where can people find your stuff? You can find Norse to the Future on Amazon. Or if you're in Galway, you could go to Charlie Burns or Moycullen Bookshop or Bell Book and Candle or uh, Man of Aaron Cafe on Inishmore or On Card Shoppa on Inishir or Bookstop in Ennis. Nice. And your social media is? Social media, you could look up Norse to the Future has a page on Instagram. It's just at Norse to the Future, N-O-R-S-E to the Future. Or King Bippy, Bip Henderson is my uh, Instagram page, at King Bippy. That's the same for Twitter, Facebook, and uh instagram yeah thanks so much bit thank you very much for having me it's been great um hopefully uh we can get you back on when uh the universe expands <laughs> <laughs> or the pandemic hits again um so thanks everybody for listening and thank you. we'll catch you the next one Slang of Alia. Slang of all.